Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome deep. Let's go deep with you today. How are you doing? I'm good. So let us first talk about how you've deepened your connection with yourself through poetry and yoga. Yeah, the two practices really do have a, a profound similarity and also a simplicity. So the way we move our bodies on a day-to-day basis really impacts our mind, our spirit, and our physical connection to ourselves. And so, you know, yoga for me has allowed me to tap into something that's very practical and take it to an experience that can be transcendental, something that can be beyond the body. And I would say similarly with poetry, it's essentially taking a little bit of that magic back into words and the way we communicate. So that way it's not so literal or based on this intelligence that we've inherited from so many generations of existence. So in other words, tapping more into your original self as opposed to imposed language that you've learned or conditioning or ideas. Right. Because for each person, you know, their connection to their body or to the way they communicate is their own. But a lot of times it's influenced by the surroundings, the environment they're born in. So essentially it's uh, you kind of exploring that on your own terms. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your history. How did you get to the place where you are now in terms of how were you introduced to yoga? Have you already have you always felt like you were some a philosopher at heart or did your path in life um, bring you to this place? 
obviously it brought you to this place, but the, your history. Yeah, I think the connection to yoga is a fascinating one because there's a complement between like not knowing and then knowing. So those two different stages. One thing is that I'm a first generation American and my family is actually from Punjab, from North India. Half of Punjab is in India, half of it's in Pakistan. So when there was a split, there was a, a migration. But nonetheless, we're located on the Indian side. I mentioned that because in regards to yoga, every, every aspect of India is influenced by the concept of yoga. And so I might not have had the terminology of yoga or Ayurveda, nor did my immediate ancestors, meaning my parents, my grandparents. But the way we live is very much on the basis of the yogic philosophy as well as the Ayurvedic philosophy. So what I was saying in terms of not knowing was early on in my life, you know, I was sometimes just rebelling against what my parents taught me as well as sometimes practicing a little bit of it. And I didn't know what was, you know, actually being practiced, what the way they were living. And later on, when I began to know through introspection and research, I also began to learn that they themselves weren't really aware that they were practicing these things. And so in the same context, you know, what I learned is the practical aspect of, of yoga is something, you know, in terms of postural alignment and things of that nature, those things, uh, they, weren't, they weren't really a part of, a big part of my upbringing, but the philosophy behind connecting yourself to something beyond your body, but at the same time prioritizing this connection to yourself um, was emphasized. Um, so in that regard, it was, it was something that was already there. It was just me recognizing and accepting that I wanted to reinterpret it in my own way. In regards to the connection that it's, you know, allowed me to build is definitely, as you can see, one of depth. There's a lot of things that I can speak to on the surface, but for me, this practice really allows me to feel safe in exploring those uncontrollable aspects of life. Hmm. Wow, there's a lot there. I first want to just ask you, can you give a few examples of some ways you saw your parents without realizing it necessarily at the time, ways that they were embodying that philosophy of yoga? Yeah, so, you know, the word yoga itself means union or to bring a, a uni, unification of something. And so early on, one of the spiritual traditions, one of the many spiritual traditions that my family was practicing at the time was, uh, and still does, is Sikhism. And in Sikhism, you're typically going to a space in a congregation and you're spending a lot of time in a practice of meditation. So there is a, a recitation of mantras and words, but, you know, of course, they're not referred to as mantras. They're essentially just vibrations and, you know, the language of Punjabi and it being articulated through that language. And mind you, like, while all of this was going on in these spaces, I was just a kid running around rebelously, getting in trouble. But nonetheless, one of those examples was noticing how 
everyone was on the ground, seated, you know, not in chairs, in cross-legged positions, and really paying attention to the sound consciously, and also paying attention to what was going on internally. So, you know, at, at that time frame, I didn't have an understanding of that, but I knew that was there. And the other aspects, you know, one that is connected with my recent, uh, my first book, Innocence, is, you know, the inspiration behind the book is my grandmother. Uh, but she had passed away about 17 years ago and she had a pacemaker. One of the things that I used to experience in regards to the time that I spent with her was this deep, profound mysticism that even though she had this crippling bodily uh, ailment that didn't even allow her own heart to operate, she had this ability to go beyond the body. And some of the ways I saw that through was the different mystical experiences that she had uh, in in that vessel. Hmm. So before we get into your writing, I'm curious, what were some of your challenges but also some of the celebrations of being a first-generation American? I think one of intersectionality, for sure, because um, English is my third language. Mm. So Punjabi is my first. Hindi, Hindi, which is like the national language of India, is something I learned through watching Bollywood movies (laughs) because my grandparents used to live in our same house. So we... We used to have three generations in our in our house. And so, you know, that immediate culture of, you know, at home, you're you have this Punjabi experience, which uh, my grandparents and my parents were uneducated. So they didn't go to school. They were farmers. And the likelihood of them getting to the U.S. in itself was a, a miracle, to say the least. It was not some sort of uh, business strategy or some sort of education that allowed them to get here. Now, none of that really (laughs) mattered to me then, because at that time, most of my time was spent trying to learn the culture that was, you know, in my environment. And so we grew up in a, and I grew up in a a low income environment, Richmond, Virginia, and it, uh, it influenced a lot of the ways I saw the world. You know, I grew up around neighborhoods with Section 8 housing. It wasn't a horrible neighborhood. There were far worse neighborhoods, but the experiences growing up were definitely one of learning the language quickly and learning to adapt in a very survival kind of state and not really knowing anything about college or education or wisdom or any any of that sort. While while also trying to understand, you know, where you fit within all of that. So, you know, the demographics were, you know, roughly like 90% African-Americans that I grew up around and a mixture of Latinos as well. And I was maybe, you know, two, two or three, maybe it was two Indians, two other Punjabis uh, in the whole system. So in terms of just identity alone, as someone that was growing growing up in that space, I didn't have a marker to identify myself as first generation. It was more so of this weird, bizarre, unidentifiable experience of just fitting in for sure, um, but not fitting in because the outlier nature of my personality and kind of just the the way I adapted to 
that scenario as not only the first generation American, but also the eldest child of the of the household, you know, the first to do everything. Hmm. Yes. And I imagine, I mean, from books I've read and from people that I do know, there is that that kind of place that you're swimming in a little bit where you're kind of trying to find that rock, you know, it's like <laughs> you're in the pool from where you came, but there's there's a lot of differences in a different culture. And, you know, like you said, having some natural rebellion, which I think probably everybody has to some degree, but I imagine it's easier to find those things to rebel against when there is a pretty significant difference between home life and life outside of the home. Yeah. And I mean, that's an interesting point about home because, you know, having immigrant parents, you know, they were barely home. So in regards to the upbringing, it was a lot of, and we've had conversations about this in terms of child parent conversations about, you know, child neglect and things of that nature. But I mean, a lot of the, a lot of that was survival necessity, right? So, I mean, there's so much depth to it, but at the end of the day, defining the concept of home in a space that you're, you know, kind of immediately juxtaposed in is a, is a very bizarre and intriguing experience. And honestly, even the language and how I articulate English now is light years away from (laughs) the first, the first aspects of how I understood English as like a set of sounds. Like I, I still remember a time frame when the language I'm speaking now was just a set of sounds. That's mm. very, very, I mean, I, I, I have teacher trainings with people from all over the world and they're, te- and they're teaching English as their third or fourth language sometimes. And, and their English is so good. They're like, oh, I apologize. I'm trying to find the words for this. And I think, wow, we are so uh, not very cultured here because We've just been raised that in this one language and your English is beautiful. I would never have known that was not even your first language, much less your third. So when you wrote your book, did you write in English? Was that your first? (laughs) 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 Well, I mean, that's a pretty fascinating question. I used to ask myself all the time, you know, like what language do I think in? What language do I, you know, write in? I actually wrote in the language of the heart though. Mm, I love that. In regards to, you know, what came about, it wasn't a planned experience. It was entirely an experience for deep and no one else. And it was uh, moments, days of crying, moments and days of just feeling, you know, it was like a journal, a space for me to navigate what it was that I needed to like express, you know, not for some artistic experience, but purely from a survival experience. So take us back to where you are ready a writer or did something summon you to start putting your thoughts to paper? So in regards to like poet, like the, the romantic expression, I should say of my soul and like the way it was communicating, I had never shared that with anyone before. I had, I never shared that. And up to that date, it had been about 10 years since, since my heart felt open to even sharing and expressing. And um, w- when I did write, 
it was always for myself. And so the interesting thing is that the, the book Innocence is, it has writings from when I was, you know, like 15 years old. So it's, it's, it's writings that span like a, a spectrum of different experiences and time frames. And I, because of my emotional intuition, I was able to transport myself back to that time and space. Um, in regards to writing, when I developed this sort of consciousness, uh, kind of incidentally, when I was like se- uh, 16, more like 17, it led me to trying to understand, you know, what it was that I wanted to do in life. And one of the things that I wanted to do, the only thing that I could think of was become a teacher, like a, a public school teacher. So I prepped myself to go get a, uh, get a degree and get an experience in becoming a historian. So history was like what I studied in college and uh, for my bachelor's. And so, you know, analyzing history, reading the depth of history, the events, everything around it, and not just, you know, American history, and not just one interpretation of American history, but multiple different revisionist concepts, as well as, you know, a spectrum of, you know, you start one somewhere. And if you really become a seeker or a scholar in one aspect, you kind of transcend that. And so I had written a lot during that time frame, you know, 20 page essays, but very much more in this uh, mental articulation. Cerebral type. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much cerebral. I would infuse a little bit of, you know, heart here and there because um, I couldn't help it. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, the professors are not looking for that. There may be a little bit of persuasion if you're trying to make a, a conversation. But, yeah, in regards to, like, what happened with, with this you know, book, and I'm really surprised to even call it a book because I can still show you the pages that were scattered all over the ground. Like it was just loose leaf paper in a, in like a a euphoric kind of state in a cathartic state of just like madly expressing and not only expressing in, in writing, but the book also has drawings in there too. So when I couldn't find words to, fit fit what was going on like i had to it wasn't even like i had to it was just something inside of me that decided to do something else um but it's it's a bizarre experience of like somehow having had an experience and then still being in the experience and being able to have a little bit of consciousness about what's going on And there's a lot to be said about that topic in specific. Yes. So I'm really curious. It almost sounds like this was a therapeutic catharsis where you needed, and again, were summoned in some way, and it might have not even been intentionally. Did you have this idea, like, I want to write something for people to share with people, or this was just your own therapy? Yeah. Okay. It wasn't. I mean, I had entertained the idea like, you know, years ago of writing, but mm-hmm. my yogic practice and my the different aspects of my ascetic and tantric practice, so meaning to define that, you know, ascetic being letting go of life and not not holding on versus tantric, meaning to engage in the senses and engage in life. 
you know, the different, like now I'm more so in a balanced aspect, but for many years, the asceticism that I practice influenced not recording my emotions or not writing down my, the minimal thoughts that I would have. And so, you know, for me, even in that process of writing that came about, I was going to burn everything. Like I was just going to take all those pages and burn them up uh, because I didn't, I didn't want to continue life. Like I didn't want to continue a life process. It was only through the sharing of it. And somewhere in my heart, I wanted to share some of what I wrote with people. And it was like very close people to me. And so I did. And, you know, clearly there was something inside of my heart that also wanted to, to be seen, to be heard, to something also in my spirit. And so with the vulnerability and the trust that was had in those moments, and it kind of informed me like, you should preserve this. Mm-hmm. You should like, that's where my mental started kicking in. And it was like, okay, let's, let's make something out of this. So, you know, I don't want to like portray this in this like sort of pseudo conversation of like, oh no, like there was not like and entirely the experience in itself was something that I never had an idea for a book. Once the experience was had and I really saw what was going on and like, like I don't do anything unless I feel moved ever in my life. I don't ever make a decision unless I really feel moved. And in that, <laughs> in that state, all I, all I was feeling was moved. I was, I had eight hours a day to treat, to treat self-care the way I would treat a job. Hmm. And so during that time frame, I was also practicing Ramadan. So there was a, a spiritual practice going on there as well, which was, you know, praying five times a day and also fasting from, from long hours from sundown, sunset. When you begin to strip your body of food, very little of the, the ignorance or the, the bullshit, if you will, the small things actually start mattering to you. And so you really get to these conversations as if you're on your last few days of life. You know, that's what, that's what it always feels like for me is like the realness of, you know, what if these were my last few days? Like, what am I, what am I experiencing right now? And so instead of like taking it for granted and assuming that I would have more days, like my, I don't know, it's just something within that experience that just time warps me to that space. Channeled it. Yeah. So for people who have not, before you get into reading, because I feel like probably it sounds like what you wrote and what you experienced is a thread that connects us all. It's like the humanity that, like you said, you wanted to be seen, you wanted to be heard. The things you speak of, loneliness, love, ignorance, these are all elements, obstacles, wants, desires that I think are the human experience. And I think that's what it sounds like you're really writing about. Um, Before you read some of that, what are some suggestions you would give to people who are living in their lives and like, man, I'd love to like feel something. I'd love to go to that depth where I'm, you know, I'm stripping away all the bullshit that's been put upon me and, or I, 
the conditioning or whatever I thought about myself or what other people have thought of me, how, what are some, some tips for people to get started at like uncovering and discarding some of the layers that get in the way? I feel like in a journey, some sort of guide is always necessary, whether that guide is from the inside or whether it's from the outside. So with that being said, I think it is important to have that balanced approach, you know, to, to depend on a little bit of both, a little bit of knowledge from the outside, a little bit from the inside. For me, what this question is also connected to is the concept of innocence. So the book itself was an experience that I had. And the reason why I chose the name innocence was not because it sounded nice or something like that. It was just, that was the concept that I kept having over and over again. And so the, the word innocence is not something I've created, clearly not. However, it is a reinterpretation and an expansion of the word. So for me, the word innocence is an expansion into a concept that is an emotional, intellectual concept a term that can be referred to within oneself when you begin to notice a state of innocence that is either being honored or not being honored. And so that's a very conscious moment by moment experience. One, one way that I can, you know, say that, let's say today is today in my, in my day, I, I didn't actually take a lot of time for myself. And so a lot of the time that I took today was things that were byproducts of me. And so as great as that may sound, it's not, it's still not me. It's not like what needs nurturance and care here. So in that state of innocence, what comes about is the essence, the reevaluation of who I am. And in some aspects, it also has to do with the people you interact with. You know, so one of the things that I talk about in innocence is the concept of natural expression versus um, projections. So natural expression versus projections. And that can be internal or external. So for someone that wants to go into the space of, of depth and wants to navigate that, you have to become aware of your innocence. You have to become aware of exactly what parts of you you're not recognizing you're not appreciating because you're not just going to fall into a hole two two thousand feet deep you know you have to first understand on the surface what it is that you're not appreciating look into your eyes you know go into the mirror go near a pond or a lake or a body of water and look into your eyes and see, see what you see in your eyes. You know, what is it that you see in your own eyes? Touch your skin, like see how that feels. Lay in the grass, see the feel the experience of what it feels like to be fully in your body. And then once you begin to tap into the body, there's all these other dimensional experiences of the heart of the brain, of the consciousness of both of those areas, and then perhaps the experience of the soul, which kind of takes you into different spaces. 
So the route is very much one's own. I think if I were to give any sort of guidance in that process, I would definitely put people on the path of embracing your heart. So within that experience of, you know, seeing your innocence, you have to let let go of those barriers. Like your heart is crazy, I know. It is crazy. It like <laughs> it it shares things that leave you very impractical. But life itself is not practical. And I think that's what keeps people from ripping away that that layer. Because they've probably built up a defense at some point. I agree. I agree with all of that. And I I feel like many people would really love to be able to do that. And I, I love how you gave permission that there isn't necessarily one, you know, path because there isn't, but a very practical and um, easy way is to sense, sense the body in the way that you were talking about, to feel yourself lying down, to look at yourself, to feel your skin. Uh, because we, we do in some ways as humans become a little numb and that usually starts from the outside in. And if we can desensitize and become much more aware of our breath and our body and this, and then journey inward and notice where it feels like something is heavy or we're carrying something that we might need to put down. It's always the first, the first step is the awareness and the awareness comes from, you have to look at yourself. I love how you said that. How many people really look at themselves? It's usually like a quick look in the mirror, make sure everything's okay. And, And then it's like, um, we are, uh, we're our own strange, we're strangers with ourselves in a way. So I love that idea of the innocence and even like this kind of inner child that there's, you would treat your inner child, that innocent child so well, you know, so beautiful, you know, just nurture it. And then, but we, we don't think of that. We don't disassociate from that idea that there is that innocent part of us always there needing care and needing compassion and love. Yeah. The inner child comment that you made is an interesting one because, you know, in regards to some of the things that I used to hate about society, because, you know, one of the ways my my first creative expression was skateboarding. And so for me, skateboarding was like exactly what I needed. And it still is because it's still a big part of my life. It was essentially looking at everything that a society told you about the streets and the architecture of a place and flipping it completely around. Because your child nature or whatever we, you know, when you're a child, you're like, oh, I want to grow up and be this and I want to be that. But you don't really actually understand like how beautiful of an experience it is to be in that state. And at the same time, you still yearn to have more knowledge. You have, you desire to be in a space, but as you become like this concept of adulthood that has kind of formed in people's minds, you only like, from my understanding, from the senses alone and not any belief systems, in this life at least, you only live once. And so being able to understand that it's not a faraway concept of like leaving that part of yourself, the 
inner child, if you will, or the, the younger parts, your innocence, like it would be a foolish mistake to think that that does not exist now. And the, and the reason where I can make this also practically applicable is some of the work that I used to do was centered around taking yoga therapy practices into detention centers and jails and refugee camps and things of that nature. Now, an adult, you know, quote unquote, this conditioned concept of uh, an adult is going to get ripped to shreds in that kind of environment because the person can tell your inauthenticity. They can tell your insecurities. They might not know it, but they can feel it. They can sense it versus, and not, not only that alone, but the other aspect of you might not really get to see what's going on inside of someone else inside of this child, right? Because you don't know what's going inside of your child, like what's what your inner child or outer child is experiencing. So it's a very beautiful thing because one thing that traveling teaches you, whether it's sometimes a lot of times it's more traveling, you know, throughout the like spontaneous trips rather than day to day because in our minds as humans, we make up this idea that we can't meet strangers and in regular places and such. And we kind of stick to that, which I don't really like, but nonetheless, you, you develop this idea, uh, this immediate experience that you might have a conversation or a connection with someone and that's it. There is no like other chance with that. So being able to fully understand yourself or at least trying to attempt to do so really allows you to appreciate the rawness and uniqueness of each person. And that doesn't have to be really, you know, bright and gloomy, uh, bright. You could really not like a person's character, but you'll really know that based upon what sort of energy you're sensing in that moment. And so, you know, in regards to innocence, Currently, you know, the comment that I made about looking into yourself, I haven't been doing that lately. So I've been violating that concept for myself. And so that comment comes from a space of not actually practicing and honoring that right now. It doesn't come from a space of, if I'm to be transparent, it's not like coming from a space of I'm actually practicing that. And so for me, even it's a guide to be like, okay, there is this set of knowledge. Why are you not? So there's that practical aspect, right? Like, because I do, I do speak about in the book about suicide awareness and suicide prevention, things of this nature too, and human trafficking and different topics. So essentially it's a guide to be able to really tap into a practical aspect into catching yourself before your mental, emotional, spiritual health goes to another realm, a realm that's more entangled. And I, I like that. And yeah, and I think that what you said is really important is that it is it is a practice that you have to return to, right? It's not like you just get something. I got it, check it off. It, it's a practice. Like you said, you need to go back to that. And it sounds very practical because it's like, it. this is a way almost, a, it sounds like a guidebook for when you aren't, you know, you aren't checking in enough to come to. So you don't go down like some devastating um, 
free for all, free fall, you know, you can catch yourself. So would you like to share some of the writings with us? I'd love to. Yeah, I have a few poems that I think would I would like to share. I would love that. So this poem is called Come Inside and Play. Many don't understand the internal world, the infinite beauty of what is within. Unfortunately, our eyes don't go inward, but does this keep us from exploring the depth of what it means to be me, to be ourselves, irrespective of time or the external world? The mystery, oh fellow humans, the mystery of what lies within, the missing piece to understanding the beauty of all the wonders outside. Let the guard down. You are safe here. Unconditional existence. The realm that is neither life or death. Perhaps this internal experience is eternity. Perhaps this is where we return to. Perhaps this is what peace feels like. Feel, don't think. Just feel the mountains, valleys, oceans, deserts, jungles, meadows, forests, marshes, and volcanoes within. There, here is your oasis. Beautiful. It also helps that you have a beautiful voice. Thank you. I um, Part of the book, I actually also recorded an audio book. Mm. And so the audio book is my voice. And there's two chapters in the book. The first chapter is called The Unknown. And the second chapter is called Pain and Suffering. So both of the chapters have a different instrumental, a music, a melody. It's, uh, it's uh, the only time in the book where I give a very specific interpretation to the emotions I was feeling. So chapter one includes this bossa nova style Brazilian um, instrumental. And chapter two includes the sounds of the desert. So it takes you into a little bit more of an eerie, darker place. I do have one other poem that I would like to share. And for everybody listening, this is a very dense book I'm looking at. Yes, it's um, page-wise, it is 250 pages. Wow. But, you know, some of it's also drawings. But still, well done. Well done. All right. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read this page. 1994, 0, 2006, 1997, 2010, 1960, 2007, 1980, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 2000, 
And is it less different years? Mm -hmm. And what did that mean to you when you wrote that? So with this particular writing, there is no uh, author's interpretation. It is uh, very subjective for each person to to gather, which is interesting because I know what it means to me, but I don't want to influence the experience of the those numbers for each person. Mm-hmm. For some people, it may not mean anything. It might you know, seem like it's just a bunch of numbers for other people. Perhaps it will trigger certain memories in those years. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it'll bring you to another number, like 3,100 that's listed, which is perhaps beyond a lot of our times. Yeah, I was thinking in how our brain is attached to, like when you were saying those numbers, there's a part of me that was like thinking of the year. And then there was a part of me that was thinking of what is the similar, like what is the connection? And is it that we, is that we almost cycle through similar turmoils as a civilization, triumphs, you know? And it was interesting because it wasn't like any one stood out to me as like, oh, that was the year of, you know, World War One or something. It was, <laughs> but it was that, that that's where my brain went. And I think that, I think that's your point is to kind of like see what that summons. Sometimes something not so obvious, like a little puppy, we kind of all know how that is going to make us feel. And this is like a very different, uh, navigational tool, I would say. So brilliant. Because we see numbers all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, you know, I'm not going to give any perspective on this, but the interesting thing is that, you know, I do, I am very impacted by the concept of history, Mm. like the concept of it, like the depth of the, the practice of history like what it really means to study history. When you begin to study history, it's not just dates and numbers of uh, global events or regional events or such and so forth. You begin to really understand yourself within that context. And I mean, everything. So yeah, I don't know what, channeled that experience of doing that but it was as you can see there's a big range between that Mm -hmm. piece and the other piece so uh what is in store for you now after i know that you just published this recently but what what has this opened up for you are you just very in the moment Yeah, I think it's definitely a mix of a little bit of planning and uh, also kind of just flowing with things. Recently, I just uh, produced my first film. It was, it's titled, I Never Went to School. And so it's it's centered on the experience of my grandfather and being a farmer in India and not knowing any English and then coming here. And so... 
with that movie and its you know spontaneous production it um it was taking a look at the subjective innocence of my grandfather and how it connected you know generations down so intergenerational experiences so that in particular is something that i'm submitting to film festivals and also is a um, a creation on its own something that is linked with innocence but has its own separate identity it's also a, a love expression or love letter to my grandfather so it's like a way of showing my gratitude while he's still here since i wasn't able to you know do that for my grandmother um in regards to what is next for me is definitely looking myself in the eyes mm-hmm. <laughs> again yeah. i love that so so rest for sure i don't see the necessity of of going on a route of being the crazy artist you know continuing a crazy as in this societal concept but more so of like i want to align i want to appreciate right you're not just there to, to produce you want to really yes, yes i get it mhm which is interesting because there is a part of me that wants to stay very static it wants to stay not static as in that but like it wants to just be electricity without like a circuit it just wants to like be all over the place but that's where i'm like no 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 let's let's reel this in a little bit um but once again like all of my words could be completely pointless cuz <laughs> tomorrow i could wake up and feel something and and i know that would lead to me like really going into that well it sounds like you have the skill sets to handle whatever emotional ride you go on and i really appreciate you sharing yourself your deep self your heart today and where can people find this book if they want to buy it it sounds like a beautiful book thank you for your kind words and the, the space you've offered to me that's what has allowed me to to express myself in such vulnerability and the questions and everything um the book itself can be found on amazon So it is listed on Amazon as an audiobook and with the audiobook you can find it directly on Amazon as well as Audible. It's also an ebook and a physical book. So if you just type in Innocence and then you type in Bulip Puni, which is my full name, you'll you'll notice it on there, but you can also just type in Innocence. Now it now it'll pop up. Mm-hmm. So if you type in Innocence it'll come up. Mm. So everyone, let's all be tender and nurturing for that inner child and this is a great way to start is really get in touch with yourself and read read poetry and words no, numbers that that somehow um elicit those vulnerable spaces that might be a little locked down right now and this is a great way to open them up and channel them so we can all be better humans in the world Thank you. I also wanted yeah. to show you oh, yeah. this. Oh, beautiful. Did you draw that? Something drew it. <laughs> Something drew it. I love <laughs> that. It was just my hand was going. He also has drawings in there for everyone who is not watching this. So, thank you so much, Deep. I really appreciate your time and your beautiful energy and and just your willingness to answer all the questions I had for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening and as always, I'm pulling for you.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.